Would you guys please give Sean a, a round of applause and encourage him this morning? Thank you. What's the word, City Church? How you guys doing? It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to be back in the saddle. That's not a Palm Sunday uh, pun right there, but it is good to be back. Jake liked that. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. And if we haven't said it already, we do appreciate that you guys are here with us. Um, it means a great deal that you came out, especially on a wet Sunday morning. Um, thank you for being here. And also want to welcome those joining us by app or podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, and I'm not going to hold it against you if you don't, but today is a significant and special day on the Christian calendar. In part, its significance can be measured by the fact that even though we find ourselves in a post-modern, post-Christian culture and country, there's still a familiarity with today at, at large, Palm Sunday. There's still some sort of a familiarity. Over the past few weeks, I've been thinking through this sermon and preparing for it and asking this question really to anyone who I could ask or corner and ask. Uh, and the question is, what, if anything, comes to mind when you hear the phrase Palm Sunday? And I want you all to be thinking about that for a moment. What, if anything, comes to mind when you hear the phrase Palm Sunday? And I kind of got several different responses, but here are sort of the categories of responses. First, uh, people are like, I have no idea. I have no details about Palm Sunday. I have no experience with Palm Sunday. If anything, there's a vague familiarity, right? They've just heard the phrase. And that may be some of you this morning. Others uh, shared memories of just these elaborate church services. And again, some of you guys might be thinking about that. Elaborate church services that included children sort of as the you know, front and center piece, but also included uh, donkeys and camels in the service, dude. And I didn't grow up in church, so I was like, word? I just can't imagine, you know, looking around right now seeing donkeys and camels. We don't have any uh, camels this morning, but if you spend enough time with us, I'm sure you might be able to meet a donkey or two, if you know what I'm saying. That went over well. I wasn't sure. I was like, ooh, is that... I could take that. But most commonly, I heard stories uh, from adults who once were children that sort of made, you know, faux palm leaves or were given real palm leaves by maybe a Sunday school teacher and taught to say phrases like Hosanna in the highest. And so one young lady told me that story. And I said, do you have any idea what that means? What does Hosanna in the highest mean? And she said, I don't know. I have no idea. I was given the palm leaf, told to wave it and repeat the phrase. Hosanna in the highest. So while familiarity can be useful for us this morning, right? Some of us have memories. Some of us have detailed memories. Some of us have sat in church services like this for years and decades. While it can be helpful for us this morning, I want to make sure that familiarity doesn't breed contempt. I want to make sure that you guys don't say, oh, I've heard this story, so I don't care about it. Again, this is the question that I've asked over the past few weeks that I'm asking to you to get things going this morning. What if anything, comes to mind when you hear the phrase Palm Sunday. Of all of the responses that I've gathered, here are a few words that I've never heard. And if I was a betting man, well, if I had the money to be a betting man, I would bet that you guys aren't thinking these three words either. 
power, prestige, and politics. Power, prestige, and politics. See, today as we consider the historic events surrounding what we refer to nowadays as Palm Sunday, I think you'll be fascinated by how familiar this story truly is. And not in the ways that you may be thinking. Not in the palms or the donkeys or the camels or the kids. Not in that kind of a way. As suggested by the classic art, which is on the front of our program. But familiar in a, in a, in a more profound way. Because this story is timelessly human, which you'll see if you're willing to track with me over the next several minutes through the narrative. And I would say that all people can find themselves in this story this morning. So whether you are excited about coming to church, maybe you call City Church your home, I bet you you can find yourself in this story. Maybe if someone drugged you to church. If you'll track with me, I bet you that you can find yourself in this story. Whether you find yourself believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, oh, I'm good. This story doesn't have anything to do with me. I bet you can find yourself in it. And if you believe that the people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are idiots and that the Lord Jesus is a liar or that the idea of him is fabricated, I bet you can find yourself in this story as well. So if you will, open with, uh, open with me to your Bibles. Um, John chapter 12 And you might also open up your app, the City Church app, to John chapter 12. If you don't have the app by now, like, you have no excuses. We have free Wi-Fi. Go ahead right now, download the City Church app so you can follow along with that. And just to clarify, my sermon notes are going to be on um, the City Church app that you can find this morning. And to that end, um, I have borrowed details from other Gospels, because fascinatingly, this account is in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I'm just asking you guys to stick with me in John 12, but I'm kind of going to be bouncing around to the other Gospels. You'll see those references on the screen, and you also see them in the sermon notes in front of you. Uh, If at any point you get overwhelmed, don't worry, just look at the screen and track with me. Now before we read today's text, which again is John 12, a bit of context is important. So we have to know what happened before this really to make the most amount of sense out of it. What you'll see in John chapter 11 is that prior to making his way to Jerusalem, Jesus was in a town called Bethany. And we see that in John eleven eighteen, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. They were close to one another. Now, through a series of events, Jesus made his way to Bethany at the request of two sisters, Mary and Martha, on behalf of their brother, a guy named Lazarus. You see, as you read through John's account of Jesus' life, what you discover is that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were near and dear to Jesus' heart. Jesus was friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And all of your considerations about Jesus, I wonder, do you ever consider that he, just like you, and just like me, had specific relationships that were significant to him. Jesus had friendships. He had friends. Martha and Mary request Jesus to return to Bethany because their brother was sick and they feared his death. Upon arriving four days later, might I add, Mary makes her way to Jesus and picks up in John 11.32. She says, now Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit 
and greatly troubled the personhood of Jesus. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus arrives at that scene, the burial of Lazarus, and Jesus weeps. Jesus wept. The Jews said, see how he loved him. Again, the personhood of Jesus. And while this could be an entire sermon unto itself, I mean, we could spend like a month of Sundays here probably. What we'll come to find out as we continue to read is that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That either happened or it didn't happen. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Again, we pick up in John's gospel, chapter 11, at verse 45. Therefore, because of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. That makes sense. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Verse 53 concludes, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The plot is thickening, but pause there. Did you see that? That's those three words that I mentioned, power prestige, and politics. Did you see it there? Which brings me to my first point, and you might jot this point down. This may be helpful as you track with me. The first point is that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. You see, what people are believing when they believe in Jesus is that, again, he's king. And we'll see that crystallize over the next few minutes, but that matters, and it certainly mattered to Rome. As a brief historical reminder, Rome had come in and conquered Israel. So Israel was under the jurisdiction and the rule of Rome, the Roman Empire. But Rome had their own king, a guy named Tiberius Caesar. And not only was Caesar king, but Caesar claimed divinity. Caesar said that he was God. And the leading Jews were well aware of this, and they understood the implication. So the leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish ruling council. Think like uh, our Supreme Court, right? They get together. They're going to have a talk. Because they understood what we just saw in verse 48, that if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And for a preacher, I'm like, well, word up. That's what we're trying to do. We want everyone to believe in him. But these guys say... Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation, power and prestige. The Romans will take away our temple, our jobs, the source of our social and cultural and economic significance, the primary place from which we draw our own personal identity, power and prestige. Politics, they'll take away our nation. You seeing it sort of bubble to the surface here? You guys still wait? Let me, let me get some. All right, there you are. You can track with me now. Okay. But here's what I suspect is the real problem in their minds, right? It's not so much the power, prestige, the politics. What I suspect is that they couldn't get away from the haunting reality of who Jesus was, even this morning, of who Jesus actually is. And that is the question which is ultimately the greatest question of all of our lives. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this person? Who is this man? Greater than where we'll go to school or, where, or who we'll date. And I know some of y'all are like, 
there can't be any greater question than where I'm going to go to school or who I'm going to date. Greater than if we'll stay or if we'll move. Greater than who we'll vote for or who we'll wage war against. Greater than how we'll invest. Greater than whether we're going to decide to have the surgery or not have the surgery. Greater than whether we like the decorations or the music or the preaching or the preacher. You see, the greatest question each of us must wrestle with and answer, if not now, then eventually is this question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And you see, I think the Jewish leaders knew the answer. And at least in part, I think they were terrified by what it meant. You see, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is who so many people believe him to be, then Houston, we have a problem. And I wonder who that's preaching to this morning. If Jesus is who he says he is, If he is who so many people believe him to be, then we got a problem. You see, the Jews knew that if Jesus was that person, then Rome, who had their own king and their own God, would strip them of their power and prestige and political influence. And they didn't like that. They liked their power. They liked their prestige. They liked their political influence. And I wonder if it trickles down to you this morning. They liked what they had going. They liked things as they were. Knowing who Jesus is, but also knowing that that means something. That that's going to mean something in your life. So do you find yourself distancing yourself from Jesus? And do you find yourself haunted by that answer, which you really kind of know in the back of your mind who Jesus is? And you know, I tried to find a clever quote here to to communicate this better than I could. Um, and I couldn't, don't put it up quite yet because I'm it's like so basic. I'm like, man, I could have done better than that. But I think about my days before I was a Christian. I read through the lives of Christians and I know Christians, people who once were not and who now are and count all they had as lost to the gain of knowing Christ. And this is what I would say to you if you are fighting back against the idea of who Jesus is and what that's going to mean in your life. And it's not eloquent, but here it is. Jesus without, I'm sorry, Jesus with nothing is everything. Everything without Jesus is nothing. Simple. It's not eloquent, but I think it gets the point. Power, prestige, politics, and as we now understand, a problem. So chapter 11 ends with verse 57, but the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of today's text, and I know you guys are like, finally, boy, it's taking a long time. My thumb is getting numb from holding the spot. So chapter 12 of John, verse 1, which brings me to my second point, the king comes to town. The king comes to town. Chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that Jesus made his return to Bethany for a dinner being held in his honor, again, hosted by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This was a party. It was a celebration. It was a special dinner amongst the most special of friends, and we can find ourselves there, right? We can relate to that. And it took place just six days before Passover. Passover was the annual celebration of Israel's deliverance from 400 years of slavery to Egypt. It's a celebration commemorating that. Passover was arguably one of the most important, joyful, and nationally significant celebrations of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And you see, this is the cultural and historical context in which Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem is taking place. 
It happened in a time while things were going on. So following the dinner, we pick up at verse 9 where we read a large crowd of the Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. And again, that makes a lot of sense. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They're already plotting to kill Jesus. Now they're going to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The Jewish leaders, scared, shaken, scrambling, realized that this Lazarus, who Jesus had just raised from the dead, is causing many of their constituents to believe in Jesus. And their answer, dig this, their answer to squelching the witness of Jesus's res- or I'm sorry, Lazarus's resurrection from the dead is to kill him. Is that odd to anyone? It's like drowning a fish, right? This dude had just been raised from the dead. We're going to kill him. I wonder if Lazarus was scared. Ravi Zacharias is a brilliant thinker, theologian, and he has just this artful um, sermon where he talks about, you know, the confrontation. Lazarus, I'm going to kill you. Ha, 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 Lazarus says. Lazarus, what are you ha, ha, ha about? I'm going to kill you. Someone can't be afraid of death if they've been there and know who is going to let them out, says Ravi Zacharias. Are you afraid of death this morning? You don't have to be. Verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This great crowd that gathered in Jerusalem for the festival has been estimated at 1.2 million people. We're dealing with a lot of folks here. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So you have this great crowd, right, surging out of Jerusalem. To welcome Jesus. They're calling him the king of Israel. And then kind of on the other side, from the opposite direction, coming from Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live, you have Jesus and the resurrected Lazarus. You have Mary, Martha, Jesus' disciples. And then the Jews who went from Jerusalem to Bethany to see this whole scene. And they're sort of rising like two waves that are going to crash into one another. And then we get this really peculiar detail at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. That's like, wah, wah, wah. That's odd that that's there. In the momentum and the inertia of the narrative, don't you think that's a peculiar detail? Jesus found a donkey. Now, if you'll take a look, and again, it's on the screen. It's in my sermon notes. Mark's account gives us a little bit more insight, so that's why I've borrowed it here. As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. You'll find a colt tied there. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Did you catch that phrase? We'll send it back here shortly. Look at that. Since it's being returned, that means that Jesus didn't take it. And you know what that's called, don't you? Borrowing. He's borrowing it. And we all do that from time to time, don't we? We borrow things, eggs or milk. When we get in a pinch, we got to go and borrow it. I borrow coffee filters from my neighbor, my neighbor all the time. My neighbor just happens to be Jake, uh, our worship leader. I'm always borrowing coffee filters from him. When we need something, we borrow it. So why did Jesus decide to borrow this young donkey? A couple questions. Maybe he was tired. It's plausible. I doubt it. I mean, this was a culture where the, you know, 
car didn't exist. People walked a lot. And as we saw earlier, Bethany was just two miles from Jerusalem. He probably wasn't tired. He could walk that. Maybe he knew he was going to make his grand entrance. So it was like time to stunt, right? It was time to show off. So he's going to get the donkey. But if he was going to stunt, if he was going to show off, he would have got a more majestic beast, right? Pulling up on a donkey is like pulling up to prom in a two-tone pinto, or something. It's a who ride. It's, it's busted. It's laughable. It's not impressive. Jesus wasn't trying to stunt here or show off with the donkey. So why did Jesus have to borrow the young donkey? Verse 14 continues, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Verse 15 echoes the words written by the prophet Zechariah found in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And here it is in full context. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, as Israel was celebrating their liberation from Egypt all these years ago, I can't help but to think that they were longing for liberation from Rome. They were still conquered. They were still being occupied. And I think it's safe to assume that they'd be longing for that. And here we find this deeply familiar and current modern thing that we're hearing. This nationalistic pride, uh, make America great again. Right? We hear that nowadays, don't we? Make America great again. And I think that was on the lips of the Jews as well. Make Israel great again. And again, we find ourselves in a similar place nowadays asking, well, how do we make a nation great? How do we do that? And the answer, which is echoed throughout the halls of time, which all of us people keep coming up with. I don't know how many times it has to fail. We say the answer to making a nation great again is a man. The right man, the strong man, the confident man, the conquering man, the king. A man is our answer. He's going to solve our problems. The king, the king who rolls into town like Caesar must have rolled into Rome, like the Babylonian kings must have rolled into Babor. In modern translation, how our kings land their private jets on landing strips, branded big to a a press conference. See, the grand displays of king cavalcades give some sort of indication, a measure, a glimpse an insight, a representation of the kingdom that they represent. And in contrast to those grand displays of power, the scripture tells us that Jesus found a donkey. What kind of a king makes his grand entrance on a donkey? And some of you might be thinking exactly what has been reiterated here by Martin Luther. From the human point of view, the whole incident looked ridiculous. And yet this beggar king riding on a donkey was Israel's king, promised by God and foretold by the prophets. The prophets, most specifically Zechariah, whose words we just looked at were written 500 years before Jesus arrived on earth, more than 500 years. Then borrowing again from Luke's account, they brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and then they put Jesus on it. This is royal treatment, cloaks being removed. And spread, put down, is exactly how another king of Israel was treated, King Jehu in Second Kings chapter 9. A king being enthroned on a donkey 
is a strange sight, though. From the human point of view, as Luther said, it's ridiculous. But the royal treatment continues, and we look to Matthew's gospel to see it here in Matthew 21. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those who followed him shouted, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Has anyone ever told you what Hosanna means? I mean, it's like a main word in one of our songs. You guys know what that means? Yeah. It means save us, redeem us. During the Passover festival, the crowds are erupting, calling Jesus the son of King David, the mighty military ruler who united Israel, led them to victorious battles, conquered their enemies, and acquired their stuff, expanded their national dominance. They're yelling, save us, redeem us, son of King David. What they're seeking here is a national, political, earthly kingdom and king. But what we see and maybe what their passion blinded them to see is that a beggar king on a borrowed donkey entering as Zechariah foretold, righteously, yes, victoriously, yes. But again, this is what they may have been blind to. Most visibly, he entered lowly, humbly, which is an indication of what this king's kingdom is like, which is our third point, the king's kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his great joy, he went and sold everything he had so that he could buy the land and possess it. The kingdom of God is like a merchant who searched for fine pearls. And when he found one, sold everything he had so he could buy it. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed taken and sown into the garden. And although it's the smallest plant, when it grows, it grows into a tree larger than any garden plants. The kingdom of God is for those who mourn because they'll be comforted. Those who are meek shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. In the kingdom of God, those who are merciful shall receive mercy. Those who are pure in heart shall see God. The peacemakers shall be called sons of God. You see, the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit and those persecuted for the sake of righteousness. More than anything, this king is not like the king's of this earth. And his kingdom is neither established, nor sustained, nor represented, nor advanced as the kingdoms of this earth are. So with no pomp, pomp, with no need or desire to make much of himself, he makes his triumphal entry on a borrowed donkey. And in Luke's words, uh, because folks are hollering now, right? The crowd that came with him and that came out to meet him, They're hollering, they're screaming, King of David, Hosanna, save us. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, they're just haters, man. Y'all know some haters? They're just haters. Teachers, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, and I I love this. And I have no uh, scriptural basis for this belief. It's just my imagination at work. But how I like to think of Jesus responding is like stooped down on that donkey, maybe leaning over to the Pharisees who are yelling at him. And what he says is, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So we have the potential for the stones to cry out. And then Luke continues bringing us to the fourth point. The king cries. The king cries. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. 
and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps. So while the stones didn't cry, Jesus the king does. In fact, a more accurate title for this entry is not Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, but Jesus' tearful entry into Jerusalem. Which begs the question, why did Jesus cry? I mean, this is the second time we've seen this dude weeping. Maybe he's just like emo, right? Maybe he's a romantic. Maybe he's just crying all the time. This is the second time we've seen Jesus cry this morning. And I don't have time uh, to deal with it fully or really to do it justice. uh, But to boil it all down, Jesus cries for Jerusalem because he knows that their rejection of him means their destruction. That's what he understands. That's why he cries for them. He knew in a few decades that the Romans would circle around Jerusalem and level the city, leaving not one stone on top of each other, which is what happened in AD 70. This is just a side note. Again, and I have uh, no scriptural evidence to lead me here, but as I spent time studying, thinking about this, asking these questions, I couldn't help but wonder if Jesus still cries, still weeps for those who reject him, because he knows that their rejection means their destruction, both now in time and onward into eternity. And I don't, I mean, I don't say that like to appeal to your emotion. Um, I respect the art and the craft of preaching and communicating far too much to cheapen it uh, with that regard. But I wonder if you know someone that you love whom you weep for because they pursue their own destruction. If you know any addicts, uh, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. My brother died of a drug overdose. Um, I weeped for him. I still find myself, you know, I'm getting in my throat. Because you see people rejecting life, rejecting beauty, rejecting truth to their own rejection. And so that's why I think this Jesus who came lowly, cried and wept for Jerusalem. He knew that their rejection meant their destruction. And with that, we're nearing our conclusion. And I know you guys say, ooh, I'm glad to hear that. So we're approaching our conclusion. Returning to our primary text, again, the Gospel of John, verse 16, which tells us at first... His disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. And I wonder who that is an encouragement to this morning. You're like, I'm lost. I don't understand all these things. Frankly, and this is, you know, I mean, this is sort of the spiritual miraculous side of Christianity. But understanding of God, of his revelation, doesn't come until the Holy Spirit comes. So Jesus ascends into heaven. He sends his helper, the Holy Spirit, for people who believe to receive. um, And that's when they start to get understanding. And I tell you, it's the same this morning. If you find yourself confused, but not able to get away from the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Lord, believe on him. He'll give you his Holy Spirit, and then he will begin to unfold mysteries for you. Verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And while I do want to hold out the hope that there were some people in the crowd who understood that Jesus's kingdom was not a physical, literal, political, economic one. I just don't really see it because, after all, today is 
Palm Sunday. We're, mem- we're, we're remembering Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week, which concludes in Jesus' crucifixion. And certainly some of these people who hailed Jesus on Palm Sunday cheered as Rome nailed Jesus on the Passover. Certainly there had to be some of them. And this brings us to our fifth and final point uh, with which we'll conclude. Jesus is not the king we want, but he is the king that we need. Jesus is not the king to want, but the king that we want, but he is the king we need. You see, not only was Jesus not the king that the Jews wanted, but he's, I mean, if we can be honest, I mean, I know we're a church, but if we can keep it 100, Jesus is not the king that we want, that humans want. Humans long for a hero, right, who can alleviate their anxiety, who can eradicate their enemies, who can win their worship. That's why history tells us the tale of the same kind of man over and over again, just with a different name. The kind of men who heap up great fortune and wealth for themselves and their supporters at the cost of and by choking it out of their opposition. The kind of men who gather power and influence through fear and lies and manipulation. The kind of men who we in America are taught to revere and esteem and become like those men. But do you know what else history tells us now? History tells us of those men dying and their power and prestige and political influence dying with them, their kingdoms vanishing. To look through history, you see the Ottoman Empire, the Persian Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the British Empire, and the Han Dynasty gone, vanished. The Holy Roman Empire, the Russian Empire, the Mongolian Empire, the Roman Empire itself, and people talk about America nowadays, gone, vanished, power, prestige, political influence, slipping to the wayside, more kings, rulers, dictators, and presidents, names forgotten than remembered, all of them kings that the people wanted, but none of them kings that the people needed. Simultaneously, history tells us of another story of one who was foretold who would be a savior, a Messiah, a king, a Christ, not only for his people, but for all people. If you're all people, can I get a holler, please? You're all people, for all people. And through time, a small group of the most unsuspecting and undeserving people were looking forward to this king against all odds. And I'm sure at times, and this might resonate with some believers here, it felt like against all logic and all reason and all sanity, they were looking forward to this king. They were telling their children and their children's children to look forward to this king. And then after hundreds of years of silence and obscurity, in the exact moment when no one was looking, a virgin and her working class husband found themselves ushered into a barn where the king was born. This savior foretold, this Messiah, this Christ. And so born into obscurity, the king arrives. He went on living in relative obscurity in a town with no merit, just like most people, but not like most kings. The king worked with his hands and he broke a sweat and he earned a living just like most people, but not like most kings. So he wasn't born like most kings. He didn't live like most kings. He certainly didn't die like most kings. Which is the exact reason that this king is the king that most of us do not want but 
all of us need. He's not only the king. He's not only the Messiah. Messiah. He's not only a savior, not only a Christ, not only for his people, but for all people. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived, which we've all failed miserably at. And he died the sinner's death that none of us have to die if we find ourselves believing in him, believing in this king. And while we long for a hero to alleviate our anxiety, right, to eradicate our enemies, to win our worship, ultimately we need a savior, we need a Messiah, we need a king, we need a Christ to cure our condition. We need a Christ to cure our condition. Politicians make promises. Jesus Christ of Nazareth makes new. By the power of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon coming. And I know he ain't been that quick, but his soon coming return. And he is coming back. Have you believed in this Jesus Christ? He wants to make you new. Even today on this Palm Sunday, he wants to enter into your consciousness, into your life, into your awareness in the same way that he entered into Jerusalem. He is the low, humble king who has come to rescue you from the kingdom and the dominion of darkness. But will you see this king lowly on a donkey inviting us into his kingdom, which is simultaneously already but not yet. A kingdom unlike any that welcomes everyone and dismisses no one with a king who emptied himself of all of his rightful power, prestige, and political influence, becoming nothing worse, becoming our sin so that we could become his righteousness, so that we could become his riches, so that we could become the very sons and daughters of God again, by believing and have you believed in this king? If not, I do ask you to consider that Jesus again is entering as it were right now before you, beckoning you to believe on him and to receive the kingdom and his kingship and his identity, which he offers to you freely by belief. And if you have believed, it's not like, all right, game over. My question to you, my challenge to you is, do you live like it? Do you think like it? Do you love like it? We long for a hero who can alleviate our anxiety, eradicate our enemies, and win our worship. Ultimately, we need a savior, a Messiah, a king, a Christ to cure our condition. Jesus of Nazareth is the savior. He is the Messiah. He is the king. Jesus is the Christ. And today on Palm Sunday, let us see him anew as we celebrate this Holy Week and march towards his death on the cross for your sin and his resurrection for your life. Will you pray with me? Lord God, how uh, can we understand these things without your help? Man, I look back on my life, and Lord, that's the story. I didn't chase you down. I didn't pursue you. I didn't go to church. But somehow, just like Jesus uh, lowly and slowly made his way to the people, uh, Lord God, you made your way to me. I pray for the folks this morning who have not yet found themselves believing that you would convince them of their conviction, even that they're feeling and thinking now, that they would look to the Christ and find their King, find their Messiah, find their Savior. Lord, and for those of us who do believe, uh, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you continue to reveal more of yourself to us, uh, allow us to be more concerned with your kingship and your kingdom 
than the passing rule of this place that we call home. Allow us to live like it for our benefit, for the benefit of the people around us, and ultimately for your glory. Lord God, we thank you that you have taken initiative, that you have been active on our behalf in ways that we never could be on our own. That in the work, in the person, in the birth, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection, the ascension, and the soon coming return of Jesus Christ, you yell from all of eternity that it is finished and we can be cured. We can be made new by believing in you. Lord God, we thank you that you have accomplished all and invited us into both your work, into your worship, into your family, into your eternity, into your kingdom. It's in your son's name we pray.